So, Mark. Yes? There's no way around it. It's like, it's an important question that we're going to have to discuss today. What's the hottest movie monster? Well, I have a couple answers in mind. The most sexual movie monster, as we all know, very easy answer, the xenomorph from Alien. (laughs) Oh. That's actually pretty good. I mean, the xenomorph is sexual. I don't know that I think of it as sexy. I don't know if it's sexy, but having walked past the H.R. Giger Museum in Gruyere, Switzerland, I can tell you it was designed to be sexual at the very least. Oh, definitely. But is it sexy? I just don't think it's sexy. Like, when I see the xenomorph, especially, like, the goopier it gets in, like, Alien 3, I'm like, yes, I get that this is, like, about sex, but I don't want to have sex with it. What's your answer, Okay. Well, Mark had some other ones. Okay, I want to hear his it. answer. So, my other answer, obviously, queer icon, the Babadook. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's the hat. It's that hat. I also did think of the Pale Man from Pan's Labyrinth as a joke, but I couldn't even commit to that. That freaks me out too much. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you started talking about, like, the obvious sexy monster that everyone wants to bang, I assumed you were going to say the Fish Man from The Shape of Water. Right. Well, yes, but he's not a monster. He's so gentle. Okay, fine. I guess it depends on your definition of monster. Guillermo del Toro identifies him as a monster. It is true. To me, I think of movie monsters as having a bit more monstrous of a personality. Otherwise, they're just different. another species. <laughs> just different. Misunderstood. Which brings me to my answer, which is Gozer from Ghostbusters. Which one is Gozer? Gozer is the one that comes through the portal and is clearly like an 80s glam rock sex Uh, monster. Oh my god, yes. Now that's a monster. But what about the blowjob ghost? Yeah, I I don't have that much interest in the blowjob ghost. For me, it's Gozer, or if not that, the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, who I think would be very cuddly. The blowjob ghost is still one of the most unnecessary scenes. 100%. That movie's PG! In cinematic history. Melissa, which movie monster would you most want to bang? I think Hellboy is keeping it with Guillermo. Again to like the Del Toro, is it a monster well? Yeah, I think he's definitely a monster and the sexiest one. But I I wouldn't want to date him, but bang to Mark's question. Yes. I just looked up Gozer and I forgot how sexy Gozer is. Yeah. So, Melissa, just to be sure, you are talking about the Ron Perlman. 100%. I have not actually. Yeah, not the David Harbour no. one that nobody saw. Exactly. I was about to say, I've never seen that movie. I will never see that movie. I think David Harbour is sexy. What movie? But what? Ron Perlman. Mark, there was a Hellboy yeah. movie in like 2018. I've never watched any Hellboy movie. Oh, man. You're missing out. You're missing The Del Toro out. ones rule. Yeah, they're Isn't really Hellboy good. a comic book? Yeah. Uh, but like pre-comic book movie era. Yeah, Hellboy was created, I think, in the 90s by Mike Mignola at Dark Horse. Nay. (laughs) Um, Actually, Mark, you might be into this. I don't know if this is a movie you like, but it feels like a movie you would have been into as a kid. The comic artist who who created Hellboy, Mike Mignola, also did all the character designs for Atlantis the Lost Empire. Uh, I loved Atlantis the Lost Empire. Yeah. I probably as a kid had a weird crush on milo without realizing that's what i was feeling sure <laughs> um i think that movie is a classic 100 does not get the love it deserves i think there's a lot of cool stuff in that movie in our episode today we're going to be talking about how part of the premise is something that i struggle with and besides that i largely like the movie i have the same issue with atlantis because For the most part, I love what's going on, except the movie goes out of its way to show us that the people alive in Atlantis in, like, the early 1900s are the same people who were alive, like, thousands of years ago when the gods turned on them. And what I don't understand is why they need Milo to teach them how to use their technology. (laughs) They all used it, and all the stuff is still there. Maybe they forgot. Yeah, that doesn't really make sense. (laughs) I guess maybe part of the curse of the it's gods. just the thing where I'm like, the easy solution here is to have them be the descendants of those people from a long time ago. Uh, yeah, because especially the fact that the princess or whatever is a descendant, like she was alive in Atlantis, but she's still the daughter of the mom who was the person. Right. It's very easy to just have them be descendants. You are correct. It is weird, but it's still a great movie with a 
woman that is like there's the femme fatale there's the sexy mechanic and then there's a rat man that blows things up what more <laughs> what do you, do you need? need isn't there a That's character everything. who like eats dirt yeah <laughs> what more do you need a french rat man that likes to explode things and eats dirt and then there's a sexy blonde femme fatale this was a major release by walt disney animation it's a great film. It is a good one. I feel like I need to rewatch it now. I don't remember the dirt eating, but that sounds great. I just, I mean, he's not eating the dirt. He just is a tunneler. Mm. He's I, more, I, I have think, not seen the movie in a long time, but I feel like he ate dirt. I think At the very least, he gave me the impression, like, if I meet this right. guy walking down the street, like, I'll yeah. shake his hand, but I know he uses that hand to eat dirt. Yeah, he is a, I think it's supposed to be more of a mole person vibe, because he's the one that is the tunneling expert, you know, that job that you could just have in 1910. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just very good at digging tunnels. I mean, we still need tunnels for some stuff. It's yeah. like a structural engineer. Yeah, but he's specifically the explosion part. He has very limited skill set. Uh, I should watch that movie again. And also Hellboy. Yes, you There's really so should. many movies I need to watch. Or I could just continue to watch Real Housewives of Beverly Hills <laughs> because I don't like thinking anymore. It's been a long year. It's been a long year. It's March. <laughs> I meant like the, the, ca- the 365 well, you're, you're, days. I think, I think we could easily just, sw- I think the year now starts March 11th. That's how we mark time. <laughs> no more January. Yeah, March January 11. 1st is arbitrary. My year starts on the anniversary of the day Tom Hanks announced he had COVID. <laughs> yeah. That is a day with significance. Now it's the Tom Hanksian calendar. That's that's. I will say, forward. come April 6th, I will watch movies again. And by movies, I mean my new Blu-ray copy of Barb and Star every night. <laughs> hey! Uh, I'm so excited. What a great purchase. I love that this podcast is becoming a Barb and Star evangelist podcast, but only on episodes that will come out like two months after it's on a home video. I still haven't seen it. I think you guys- You gotta watch I it! Feel like, I, I think you guys must have said something to Caleb about this too, because he came, when he was done with his episode, he was like, oh, we have to watch this movie, Barb and Star or something. It rules. <laughs> All right. I'm really excited to talk about today's movie, so I just want to get into it. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm gay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. And I'm Melissa, and I'm black. Still. <laughs> This, of course, is an investigative podcast digging into one of the least important issues facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are rejoined by our friend Melissa to talk about the romance of 1999's blockbuster hit, The Mummy. Written and directed by Stephen Summers, starring Brendan Fraser, Rachel Weisz, and a whole bunch of other people. Hello, hello. I'm so glad we're doing this movie. This is, I don't want to say that The Mummy is the greatest movie ever made, but it (laughs) might be. I don't know. Maybe we'll figure out at the end of this episode. You're saying we shouldn't rule it out. We shouldn't rule it out. Like, let's let's see where we end up, but possible. I haven't watched this movie in so long, and I'd forgotten how much of just a straight comedy it is. It's hilarious. Because I was cackling at times. Like, the scene where... Rick is tying a knot or something and is throwing the rope and the <laughs> warden of the prison is just standing too close to the rope and every time just goes, ah, I laughed every time, every time he made that noise. I think it just does a great job of like every moment, no moment is wasted. Like every moment is a moment for action, fun, romance. It's exactly what you want from a movie in the 90s. Yeah, so I had never seen this movie or actually any mummy movie of any incarnation (laughs) before this. And I really was struck watching it, how much it is a sort of action adventure comedy in the spirit of something like Indiana Jones. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And I was, when I did some, you know, a little bit of research, it seems like the, before it actually got made, there were lots of iterations of how to do this remake and it was like a horror movie. And then it, I don't know, it was going to be something else. And I think the moment that they actually were, they got to success and like were able to create it was thinking about it in the vein of an Indiana Jones movie. And I think it just hits all of those beats perfectly. Right. Yeah. The idea to bring back the mummy started in the early 90s like you said the goal was to make a low budget horror franchise they're like what if we could make like 
a horror movie for less than $10 million that spooks modern audiences at the end of the millennium. So there was a version developed by Clive Barker, which would be about a museum director who was actually a cultist trying to revive the mummies and take over or something. That's fun. Yeah? It's kind of night at the museum, really, when you think about it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if you could make that, you could make that pretty dang spooky. Right. Like, I would watch Ari Aster make that movie. Sure. Uh, Joe Dante developed a version, came pretty close to making one starring Daniel Day-Lewis that was all about, like, reincarnation stuff. I would love to see that I would love to see that version. (laughs) Just take the concept of the mummy, but let's make it a ponderous reflection on the concept of reincarnation (laughs) starring Daniel Day-Lewis. But directed by Joe Dante, so you have, like, Gremlins chaos energy. What a great combo. George Romero developed a version where, like, they're doing experiments on a mummy, and when they do an MRI, it, like, electrocutes the mummy back to life. And then the first half of the movie is, like, a fish-out-of-water thing where the mummy learns to adapt to modern life. But then, when he learns about the desecration of Egyptian tombs, it turns, like, shockingly, shockingly violent. Every single one of these sounds really good. Like, I would watch all of these. I would watch all of these movies. So... Eventually, then, Stephen Summers comes in, and it's he who pitches the sort of Indiana Jones vibe. And Universal was like, cool, can you make it for $15 million? And he said, no, that is what I will need for special effects. Yeah, this was not a cheap movie. Yeah, I mean, like, it cost $80 million, which is a solid chunk of change. I think the reason it doesn't feel like a massively expensive movie to me, and obviously it's something that Universal put money into, but you compare it to the fact that two weeks later, The Phantom Menace opens. Yeah. And that's a movie that looks expensive. This movie is also ILM, though, isn't it? Yeah. The graphics in this are definitely dated, but the Scarab Beatles, I watched this Timeless. movie way too, way <laughs> too young the first time. I was like six or something. And once they got to the Scarabs, I cried and had to leave the room because those are actually pretty dang freaky. But the other stuff... It's such a weird mix of things that are almost a little silly now, like the water with the spirits coming out of it, and then things that still look cool, like the face coming out of the sand. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Like, to me, for the most part, these effects look pretty good. Right. Especially the the face coming out of the sand, which I don't know what's going on (laughs) there, and it's never followed up on, but it sure does look cool. Well, that's a lot of the mindset of this movie, and I don't hate it. Yeah, you just have to embrace it. Like, you know. The powers of the mummy are never fully explained, and I don't care. So, Mark, you said you saw this movie at too young an age. Did you see it in theaters? No. I saw it, uh, it's PG, I'm pretty sure it's rated PG-13, and I watched it in the basement of a friend who had an older sibling, and we were not allowed to watch it. Uh, and then I got too scared and had to leave. And then I watched it again in, like, middle school and loved it. I have, like, a similar, like, origin with The Mummy. I actually saw The Mummy Returns first, and it was, I saw it with a friend. We were, I was staying over at her house, and we really, really wanted to watch it. And her mom was like, if you guys have nightmares, Melissa, I'm taking you home. Like, I'm going to be really angry if I have to deal with mummy nightmares tonight. And she, like, called my mom and was like, can Melissa watch this? My mom was like, look, she's at your house. Like, deal with it. (laughs) And we watched The Mummy Returns, and I did get scared, but I promised myself I wouldn't have nightmares. And then after that, I was sold. I was like, I have to see The Mummy. Later on, got to see The Scorpion King. Like, I need the full the full so you're like all in on the franchise i'm all in on the franchise i actually was thinking a little bit like i'm gonna have to try and be objective about this as we're talking about it because like any small mummy slander i'm like guys this is this is again potentially the greatest movie ever made i i do (laughs) that's our investigative question today (laughs) i have not seen the scorpion king but i remember enjoying the mummy returns isn't that it's Dwayne the Rock Johnson's first film appearance, if I remember correctly? Yep. Yes. He was on set for like one day and he was super sick and all they had to do was shoot him looking really intense running forward. That's a yeah. solid paycheck. I think it's also on HBO Max, so maybe I'll watch that later. Yeah, they have the mummy collection, so you can watch all three. And then Tomb of the Dragon Empire Emperor. But honestly, what's the point of that one? Because it doesn't have Rachel Weiss. Yeah, you can you can you can drop that one. You don't need that one. Sorry to say. 
Can you believe Rachel Weisz was like 29 in this movie? Do you think she looks older or younger? She looks like a child. <laughs> she's great in this though. Like she's Obviously. introduced like with the full on librarian look with her like 20s short hair. Yeah. I mean, the thing with her big glasses. The thing with this movie is almost, I mean, everyone's good looking in it. That's like the, that's the real joy. That's the key to the it's movie. It's the key to the yeah, movie. That's... Everyone's attractive. I mean, the movie opens with. Aksu Moon. Aksu Namun. Looking hot. She is wearing. She's like just wearing jewelry, a loincloth, and pasties. The rest of that is just makeup. It took four hours to put on. Right. And it was worth it. Worth it. Because she looks incredible. It is like kind of a, a cool idea. Obviously, like a horrible thing to do to a human being, but a cool idea of like. The paint all over her body so that the pharaoh knows if anyone has touched her. Yeah, she's like a work of art. Never thought about that as, like, the reason he did it. But that is cool. It's, you know, she is untouchable. I just wish that this movie had cast maybe one Egyptian. <laughs> I know. I think oh. as I was thinking about, is this the greatest movie? I was like, I you have to really get past a lot of questionable a casting choices. Casual misogyny. Casual racism. Race issues. Stereotypes. I mean, <laughs> the, the biggest issue for me, besides like the casting, is the fact that with uh, Warden Hassan, yes. the guy who... Evie negotiates with for Rick's life. He's played by Omid Jalili. Every time he walks in or know, out of a room, they're like, wow, that guy smells terrible. It's awful. It is, it's the worst joke in, like, in the movie. It's terrible. And the thing is, I don't think the writers were thinking it's because he's Egyptian. It's more because he's fat. Also. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not better. But yeah, that's definitely what they're going for there. Then we've got Arnold Vosloo as Imhotep, who is an Afrikaner. He's a white South African. And all of this gets worse in The Mummy Returns. <laughs> like when they, oh, when really? they really, I mean, not to spoil it, because I know you're going to run to watch it soon. Um, when they really kind of buckle down on like Evie's origins and Rick's origins, it's like this doesn't, the, <laughs> these people so, cannot actually be <laughs> Nothing good can come from no. knowing their backstories. <laughs> like, Mark, you know more about, like, Egyptology and stuff than I do. Oh, absolutely. But... Absolutely none of this <laughs> trap. Like, it makes zero... You don't understand how much this movie does not give a single shit about ancient Egypt. I swear they just threw darts at a wall to pick a pharaoh and a time... The... Pyramids were centuries, if not over a thousand years old by the time Seti was pharaoh, I'm pretty sure. And Imhotep helped build, I think, the first pyramid, like the Step Pyramid. It's wild. Also, the plague showing up. (laughs) Here's my plague issue, okay? My issue with the plagues is that they promised me all ten plagues from the Bible, and I did not see a single frog. Not a single one. As soon as they were like, the ten plagues, I was like, give me some frogs, (laughs) let's go. I had totally forgotten about the raining fire plague, though. Uh I was, I was furious when they were like, all the plagues have happened. And I was like, um, no, they have not. Also, I feel like we would have heard if the firstborn son of every Egyptian <laughs> died. <laughs> I was going to say, or, so we missed frogs, the killing of the firstborn. Maybe he just hadn't gotten there yet. Right. He didn't get the chance. He was too distracted by Anksu Namun. I will say in the... Original. I have seen the 1930s movie. And I mean, very different, entirely different, but they did take a couple ideas. And I think the casual mention to her mother being Egyptian is more in this movie a nod to the mummy movie from the 30s, because in that movie, she is the direct descendant of his love. And that's made clear. And that's why he chooses her. And he's actually putting her spirit back into the woman's body. There's no second body. Interesting. Which does make more sense than what happens in this movie. Well, right. again, not to not to go Mummy Returns, but I think they tried to kind of tie in some of this ancestry of Evie and Anaxana Moon and how they are, I don't know, like it's something like Evie is the reincarnated daughter of the pharaoh. Yeah. 
and Rick is like the promised one. It, yeah, it it doesn't get better <laughs> as they dig into the yeah. backstory. So I did appreciate this is the first time I've watched it since seeing the Mummy movie, the you know '30s one, and there were a couple more nods than I had remembered, which I kind of enjoyed. This is more of a like a remake or a spiritual successor than you would expect. Like you would kind of think we're just making a movie about a mummy. And like it's kind of weird that as a society, we've just decided that like all of these public domain or like no particular source monsters are just proprietary <laughs> universal characters. Like anybody could make a mummy movie, but nobody's going to. Right. Cuz in the mu- the scene that I'm also thinking of is in the mummy movie from the 30s the mummy comes back and pretends to be like a nobleman. Like in the scene where he has the mask on and is introduced Which is a as, great look. Yeah. Great look. Where he's introduced as Lord what, blah, blah, blah. That's also a reference to the 30s version of the movie. Because in that, it's much more playing on the sort of Dracula style thing. Mm. Where Dracula is the high class nobleman who is secretly a monster. Very much that vibe. You're really making me want to watch the one from 1932. Um, Are you? St- you don't need to. <laughs> you pass. I can pass on it. Uh, classic monster movies are always fun. Like you know, they're not too long. That is true. They're short. Yeah, I think they're fun, even when they're not great. Like the Wolfman is still a fun time. Have you watched the Mummy? The Mummy was a little s- slower than I wanted. I have not seen the Mummy, but I. I was going to, but I watched the Snyder Cut instead like an idiot. <laughs> I saw it back in the days of Movie Pass. Uh, I went days. and saw it at the AFI in theaters, and it was very cool. But you have to be in the right mindset. If you make it an evening, like you have popcorn, you put away your phone and really enjoy it. But I have a feeling it would be a very easy movie to just look at your phone and not pay attention to because there's not a ton of gripping moments yeah but i mean you can you really sold me with short like i i can pretty much be convinced on any movie if it's short actually (laughs) all the monster movies are under 90 oh that's perfect that's perfect even king kong was so short i loved it yeah that movie rules i mean speaking of sort of those classic monster movies one of the things that i appreciated about the mummy 1999 was how much it allowed suggestion and dread to do a lot of the work for it. And part of that is a function of the visual effects budget. You know, they only have so much money to use with industrial light and magic. They did motion capture for the, like, mummy when it's moving around. And you want to be careful with that. Like, you don't want to show mocap in daylight because it'll look bad in 1999. And so what that means is they spend a lot of time doing very basic effects. Like, let's have wind blow across here and just, like, play a spooky sound. But that does the job. That helps to make it creepier than if we were looking at this cgi thing but then when someone jokes or says that happens a lot here about the wind it points out how spooky it is but it's also so funny and also they need to say that because you as the audience are like what they're noticing all this right like they keep like having something creepy happen freak out and then continue to hang around i know they are so dumb melissa i'm gonna drop the poster for the 1932 mummy movie so you can see the vibe of the character that eb is slightly based off of okay this is a great poster i love this it is such a mummy poster poster. oh okay (laughs) i will also say the original 1932 Mummy had a much better, like, slogan than The Mummy 99. Just, like, it comes to life is simple and exciting, and I like it. What was the tagline of this one? The tagline of The Mummy 99 is, The sands will rise, the heavens will part, the power will be unleashed. Ew. That's not as good. And no. then the poster is the pyramids with the giant face in the sand over it. This mummy movie is the most Christian depiction of ancient Egypt since, or, I mean, it's around the same time as the Prince of Egypt. It's like six months after the Prince of Egypt. It's just very much, this is what a Christian thinks of about ancient Egypt. What are you thinking of in particular? Well, the fact that this high priest comes back with the plagues in particular. (laughs) All right, we've got a lot to talk about, but I don't know how much this has to do with romance. We need to talk about Imhotep's murder or his killing or whatever Imhotep is the high priest of Egypt or whatever he's executed for having an affair with the pharaoh's favorite concubine and they well, execute him by making him for 
killing the pharaoh very violently. <laughs> There's okay, that that's fact true too. too. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. They then kill him by making him impossibly powerful. <laughs> I know. I know. So they're like, everyone else gets mummified. He is going to be mummified alive in a way that means if anyone ever opens this, he will have unstoppable magical powers. <laughs> it makes no It makes no sense. I have absolutely I never thought about that until this very moment. <laughs> Why would they do that? And then they have to, like, create the Magi, this, like, whole order, whose whole job is nope. to make sure that the dude they wanted dead stays dead. You could have just not given him the option to come back to life. The Magi were around before. They were already the Pharaoh's bodyguards. They're not very good at their job, right? That's a really, that's a, that's a no. like, very frequent reminder in this movie is the Magi are not good bodyguards. I don't really know if you want them to be guarding anything. I mean, Ardeth is very, again, I very love- attractive, but I don't know if he's very good at the job. Everyone's so hot in this movie. <laughs> Okay, the original plan was for all of the Magi to be, like, totally covered in tattoos. And I've seen this in multiple different places. Steven Summers saw the actor who played Ardith <laughs> and said, No, you're too hot to cover with tattoos. We need to be able to see your face. Thank you. Thank you, Steven yes. Summers, for knowing the vibes. Like, we have to see Ardith Bay. He knows, he knows the vibe. But it's not very good at his job. This is a hot movie. Not very good. It was almost too hot. <laughs> uh, after the river fight, like, when they're on the riverboat and stuff, Evelyn's white nightgown had become transparent and they got an R rating, so they had to go in and digitally repaint her nightgown to get it down to PG-13 again. Wow. Yeah, she does go in with what would be the worst nightgown to get wet in terms of modesty. Yeah. He doesn't come up in the romance. I do want to take a brief moment to shout out Benny. <laughs> do One we of need the to greatest take... characters in this movie. <laughs> Is he? Is he? Mostly for the moment where he starts praying to yes. all of the gods with the different necklaces. That is very funny. Like, he's just working his way through yeah. different gods that he thinks will protect him. And I like that idea as, like, a grave robber. He's prepared for whatever mysticism will help him out. I just also, it's very fun watching Rick throw him off of things. Yes. He is well cast to be a person that you laugh at when he gets thrown off of stuff. Benny's played by Kevin J. O'Connor, who is in most of Steven Summers' movies. I think the most notable parallel to this is that he played Igor in Van Helsing. I forgot that that movie was a thing. (laughs) I vividly remember the marketing campaign, but I've never seen it. I don't think I've seen it, and I I feel like I hadn't seen the... uh, What did you say his name was? Kevin J. O'Connor? Kevin J. O'Connor. But he appears in Widows. And I remember seeing... He's in Widows? He's in Widows, if I remember correctly. And I think I do, because I remember seeing it in theaters and being like, oh my god, it's Benny! But he is the person in the wheelchair when Daniel Kaluuya's character goes to the bowling alley. Oh, dang! That is awesome! Right? Yeah. He's great. I I want to see more stuff. I just looked at Stephen Summers' filmography, and I'm realizing the only other Stephen Summers movie I've seen is G.I. Joe, Rise of Cobra. Wow, that's a Which great I, one, though. <laughs> I did, I've heard those movies are low-key good. I did watch in theaters, and I did have a great time, and I did laugh harder than at most comedies that came out in 2009. I think I think that's a good... I don't know. I mean, I feel like he's got... Does he have the market cornered on like just having a good time at the movies? Not necessarily maybe great films, but great for fun. I think this movie is like a pretty darn good movie. Like, it manages to balance its different tones. Like, it manages to be genuinely kind of spooky while also being romantic and being funny kind of swashbuckly like it's a tricky thing to pull off when they were on the boat i was thinking a lot about this as a movie that comes out in the wake of titanic where in 1997 titanic's of course uh, the biggest hit of all time actually leonardo dicaprio was attached to star in this for a while like they came close to making it with leo but thank his God. schedule couldn't line up with the beach thank god which he was committed to That's a blessing. (laughs) But like of all of the movies that come out after Titanic and are trying to play on that. And Mark, we talked about this on our Cold Mountain episode where like that movie leans into the like doomed period romance. I think what the mummy gets is that for its first hour and a half, Titanic is a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. This is one of the best balances of action, horror and comedy and romance in a movie that I've seen in a while where I didn't feel that any of them were shortchanged or overdone. 
there was no too much Gary Oldman. (laughs) (laughs) Last week we talked about The Space Between Us, which is somehow the most boring, absurd movie we have ever seen. I don't even think I've heard of this movie. Oh, you know, it's a classic romance about a boy who is born on a spaceship. So he lives his life on Mars because they're not sure if his blood can flow properly in Earth's gravity. But he makes an internet girlfriend who lives on Earth, and he goes on a rocket to meet her on Earth, and it's a whole issue. And Gary Oldman is secretly his dad. And Gary Oldman is also really the center of the movie, who gets, like, an hour of the two-hour runtime. There's no way to talk about this movie without making it sound much more fun than it is. Yeah, it's so boring. I mean, it honestly, it's not sounding great, though, as you're but just Good! <laughs> That's what we want. That movie is such a good foil to this in terms of shortchanging every aspect by trying to put in too many things whereas this movie has such a good balance of all the different parts like you laugh you love you don't really cry (laughs) there's not a lot if you're brendan fraser you almost die on set because the noose thing was real oh god like he passed out and almost died like shooting that he also almost got bitten by a poisonous snake while taking a leak off set one time because they were they shot on location in Morocco and when they arrived they were briefed on like okay there's this snake with yellow dots don't let it bite <laughs> you or you're going to die and a bunch of crew members did have to be airlifted out because they had been bitten by snakes as far as i can tell nobody died but Brendan Fraser tells this story about one time he's just like taking a leak and he sees this snake moving towards him man maybe i mean it sounds like enough bad stuff happened to think like could this movie be cursed But not, like, too much. Like, just enough to question, is this movie cursed? No. (laughs) No, this movie is blessed. (laughs) This movie is blessed. Hashtag blessed. One of my favorite things about ancient Egyptian curses is the one that's referenced most is King Tut. And one of the people that supposedly, you know, was cursed and died, died, I think, like, 40 years later. In his 70s or something. And people were like, the curse of King Tut's tomb. (laughs) It's like, people die. Everyone dies. And you know what, Mark? Every person who has ever been in King Tut's tomb, dead. Cursed. Cursed. Except for Emotep. Except for Emotep, who is given the power to destroy everyone. I love it. It. Makes no sense. There's no reason for it to make sense. The other thing this movie destroyed, the box office. (laughs) Ooh, what a segue. Oh, snaps. The Mummy was a big hit. Early on, they had been really concerned that audiences were not going to be interested in a Mummy movie that they had spent $80 million to make. They debuted the trailer during the Super Bowl, though, and built a lot of buzz based on that. So when it opened on May 7th, 1999, it did so in first place with an opening weekend of $43 million. Wow. Wow. Which made it the highest non-memorial day May opening weekend of all time. Wow. What other do you, like what other movies were out? Well, the big thing that happens is The Mummy is in first place for 2 weeks until oh, the, the Phantom, Phantom Menace, Menace opens. Yeah. The Matrix is still holding on in like third or fourth place. That's sort of the holdover. What a big, big May. It's 1999. Great time for movies. Election is in the top five. Like, three there's of all the, kinds of good stuff. Three happening. of the movies we've mentioned are good, but like, it was a very the Phantom Menace is an movie. undeniable event. Yeah, it's an event film. Not denying that. I, you know, I mean, this is not the movie that we're not here to talk about, Phantom Menace. But I was a late bloomer to Star Wars movies, and I actually just watched most of them uh, recently in the past like six months, and I didn't hate the Phantom Menace. There's some interesting stuff there. It absolutely does not function as a, as a film. And <laughs> it, obviously the it, racial stuff is really dicey for 1999. Yeah, could be good. But I just want either way more about the tax laws of the Republic or less. There's the exact wrong amount of tax laws in that film. Right. And we talk a lot about like movies that would be like a Netflix miniseries today. The Phantom Menace actually should be. Like, we should get time for all the political stuff that's going on there. Except the Nemoidians should just be in- changed entirely. Right, they should all be Toydarians. Yeah, you guys have lost me there. That's, like, that's way too deep for me. <laughs> Again, most of what we're talking about comes in the opening crawl. <laughs> yeah, well, then, 
there's there's probably a reason then that I don't recognize it. The Phantom Menace is one of those movies that I keep giving another shot to. Like every two years or so, I'll be like, you know, there's something there. And I'll turn it on and within like 30 to 40 minutes, I'm like, no, there's not. But now I feel pot committed. (laughs) Because the thing is, I know the Darth Maul fight is coming. So it's like, well, if I hang in, I'll get to see something cool. Uh, All right, we're getting very off track. Should we start talking about the romance of this movie? Yes, Yes. definitely. All right. So every week we talk about the romantic plotline of a film by breaking it down into five points to guide discussion and keep us on track, a thing we're very good at. So, Melissa, as our guest, would you kindly bring us to point one? Yes. So I actually thought when I watched this again, like, of course, Evie and Rick are the romance, but Emotep and Anox and a Moon are also like a very strong romance story. And I think that at some point in the beginning of the movie, when they're describing Emotep and Anox and a Moon, they talk about um, they were so in love that they would give their lives for each other. And I just think okay. that that's a good parallel for us to talk about both couples. But for their love. They were willing to risk life itself. I think you're right. While we're talking at the beginning of the movie, I just want to say, this movie starts off on its worst foot, which is with a bunch of clunky voiceover. Yes. And then when it gets to the present, the first thing it does is a very confusing fight scene. Yeah, the opening of this movie could be tightened up. But just remember how great Anksu Namud looked when right. she walked out. Exactly. I'm like, what voiceover? I don't even... like. I'll... <laughs> All I remember is gold. Exactly. Originally, that voiceover was going to be done by Imhotep. And then they were like, Imhotep doesn't speak English. We got to have the other guy do it. One thing I do love about this movie is how the actor who played Imhotep refused to camp it up at all. He said to the director, I will only be in this if I can play it extremely straight. And he was acting as if he was in a Romeo and Juliet production essentially which is kind of what makes him so compelling right and that's why you need it nick was like i'm kind of on emotap's side who cares about the world he just (laughs) wants to see his girlfriend again i mean that's what a maniac says and you should be concerned (laughs) about that i don't know i mean isn't that isn't that literally what jamie lannister says (laughs) yeah i mean he mostly meant it to be funny but i think it is a good testament to emotap performance in how he is playing it completely straight where you do kind of get why he's doing this except it's also not his fault that he was cursed with the power to destroy (laughs) the world why would they do it it's not really his fault that the way they killed him means that if he's brought back to life the plagues happen i like so much about this movie and so many things makes so little sense like the fact that not only do they mummify all of his priests which is a weird thing to do for people that they hate yes they then also like encase them in stone ready to go with weapons so that when he comes back they come charging out ready to help him and when he is this like shambling zombie body he decides that The way he wants to get back is by taking the eyes of a guy who is so blind that without his glasses, he can't tell where anything is. So is Imhotep not blind for the rest of the movie? Out of all of the things in this movie that don't make sense, that is the only one that really, really gets to me. Is out of all of the eyes to take, you take the eyes of the guy who wears glasses. And apparently very necessary glasses yes this is not a guy who's just popping them on to read the newspaper right he needs full full velma at one point (laughs) my glasses i can't find my glasses also the glasses get broken but they're not broken enough where he couldn't hold them up and look through to see if he was that blind he was dumb (laughs) this is not a time enough at last situation uh he was definitely one of the dumbest of the dumb americans who I enjoy. Uh, love I the love Americans. them. They're so funny. If you want to talk about himbos, <laughs> <laughs> the three Americans are himbos. And we've got Brendan Fraser in our lead coming off of a himbo performance in George of the Jungle. He was much less of a himbo in this than I was promised by Twitter because he is mean. He's not he has some nice. Mean? How do you think Rick is mean? I think Rick is probably one of my favorite. I mean, I, I don't love know. Him. I, I think he's that not the mo- mean. He's not mean, but how you think he's just kind of a jerk. He's he's a jerk. He's brusque. He is very dismissive of, you know, women. 
<laughs> well, the one woman in the movie. Yes. Uh, there are two, William. Right, there's uh, Aung San Suu literally just And there a are also the object. women. There are the women who very briefly dress Rachel Weiss in that weird face covering. Oh my god. And I say it is weird because she only wears it in the one scene. It's also like defeats the entire purpose of a veil by being see-through. It's just for looks. It's just for a look. Just a fashion vibe. It is just a fashion vibe. I just remembered this. It took me until this viewing to realize that the museum curator burned the map on purpose because he's a Medjai. And I feel kind of dumb for not putting that together before. Yeah, I think he- Oh, yeah. He hams it up pretty big when he burns it. So, so I mean, it sounds like, Will, that you don't think that- Emotep and an ox on a moon are a romance. Or do you think he's just obsessive? No, I do think they're a romance. But I think that, like, especially in the prologue, I think they're a romance. But it is not romantic to destroy the world yeah. just so you can be with somebody. No, it is very bad. But also, again, I feel bad because that's not really Emotep's fault. Right. His He just <laughs> loves an ox on a moon and... You know, he, did he do anything wrong? He just died, you know, and they gave him the curse. They gave him all the power and he just wanted to see his girl again. I don't know. I think it's kind of cute. Imagine if you were involuntarily brought back to life and found out that you are the cause of the plagues. <laughs> I would say, where are the frogs? <laughs> I guess he just leans into it. Anyway, we were talking about romance. <laughs> Yes, I mean, maybe that's a good place for me to go to point two, which is Rick and Evie, who are the the real romantic heart of the movie. Um, I think that I really like this scene where she gets drunk and she says, what's a place like me doing in a girl like this? And and you have Rick who, you know, ends up in jail just because he's looking for a good time. And I feel like that's the kind of quintessential romance of they're opposites and they're attracting, but they're both in search of something and they find it in each other. In (laughs) Hamanoptra. Sorry, didn't mean to scare you. Anything that scares me, Mr. O'Connell, your manners. Still angry about that kiss, huh? Oh, if you call that a kiss. What I like about Evie so much is that she, frankly, like, in a weird way, like, I enjoy that she gets to go on an adventure without really learning a lesson in the way that a lot of pulp characters do. You know, if you're reading a pulp novel in the 1930s, which is what these are drawing on along with Indiana Jones. Like the character is going to be basically the same from time to time, but you want to see them go on a cool adventure. And Evie has a goal. Like she is a librarian and she wants to be able to study with the best of the best, but they think she doesn't have any field experience. She goes on a cool adventure and gets field experience and she gets to consistently assert herself through what she knows, but she's also not somebody who constantly needs to be rescued. Like, she gets to kind of hold her own in fights. The first time we see her captured, she's using the candle to free herself. Yeah, she kills a guy like, at some point yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yeah, she shoots someone. And that's all really cool, even if we do have a requisite scene where we see how clumsy she is by knocking over an entire room of bookcases that are not anchored to the floor for some reason. And also are designed in a perfect circle. I It makes me laugh every time that the books cases tumble in the perfect circle i'm a big fan of the u.s consumer product safety commission on twitter and i just gotta say they tell me over and over again that i need to anchor my bookcases and i don't do it but i also don't set them up like dominoes (laughs) this is a good scene this is a good scene for them they should like use this to show why you really need to do this anchor your bookshelves so they meet like with him in jail and he literally steals a kiss from her oh my heart just fluttered (laughs) really he like entices her forward like he's Hannibal Lecter and then grabs her face and kisses her. But he, he looks like Brendan Fraser. <laughs> yeah, and it was a good thing to do at the time, so he says. No, I, I definitely think there is something to be said for the kind of moments of stealing kisses from Evelyn gets a lot of kisses she didn't ask for um in yeah. this movie, which there's definitely poor, something to be said about that. Uh, I do have to say, I can't believe we haven't talked about Bitter Queen Jonathan yet. <laughs> the best. <laughs> Jonathan is played by John Hanna, who had broke out a couple years earlier in Four Weddings and a Funeral. And he is Evie's, like, drunken failure archaeologist brother. Is he an archaeologist? I didn't even grasp that he he's had any He's a treasure hunter. <laughs> yeah, he's at least archaeology adjacent. Like, 
he's connected to the museum to the point that he can just hide in sarcophagi <laughs> and pop out with mummies. But also, like, he's clearly going on expeditions. He's come to her to say, like, hey, I never find anything that's worth anything. Is this worth something? And he's got the map. He also can read hieroglyphics, too. Except for that one. Yeah. He, he yeah, never remembers one. one. There's always one that he doesn't remember. I love Jonathan. He's great. But yeah, so Rick and Evie, like, she saves his life from being hanged when Brendan Fraser was actually being hanged. And the way she does that is by convincing the smelly warden that Rick knows the way to Hamanoptra, the legendary city of the dead, which is full of gold. And so they start an expedition to go and find Hamanoptra. And I just, I don't know, I just really feel like there, there are definitely some moments that my heart really sings when I see Rick and Evie together. The two of them on the boat is adorable, wonderfully fun and romantic. Adorable. They have such good chemistry, yeah. the two actors. Yeah, I mean, 90s Brendan Fraser is, I don't know if they're, if anyone else, ha- like, if anyone has had a hotter moment than Brendan Fraser in the 90s. Such a specific hotness, too. Right. Yeah. No one else has the hotness of Brendan Fraser. It's very unique. Like, he's obviously good looking, but not like in a, I don't know, overwhelming, like, too movie perfect way. He just looks like, oh, I could actually maybe meet this guy. He is is one of the most, like, achievable Hollywood leading men. (laughs) Yeah, I think that, like, that is what always sort of hits me when I'm watching this movie is they have great chemistry, but he's never trying to rescue her. She never really needs to be rescued. And the moment where he steals the tools from the Americans to give her and he's, like, fumbling over his words, like, is there any other kind of sweeter moment? I don't think so. That is really cute. Yeah, you guys you guys are making me rethink a little. Like, you know, I think Emo Temp destroying the world for a Nox and a Moon is kind of cute. Like, Rick stealing no. things for Evie. It's it's sweet. <laughs> Very problematic elements of both of these romances. But also, the difference in degree is massive. <laughs> I, I feel kind of bad for Emo Temp. Cursed with the ability to destroy the world. But then you just, I guess if you have it, you might as well roll with it. What else are you going to do? <laughs> they brought you back, right? Like, what else are you going to do? You're already up. Okay, so moving to the third one, I think, like, the sort of, to the point that Will brought up of, like, how she never really learns a lesson is, I think, the climax of, or the conflict in their relationship when Emotep steals her. Right, because Emotep wants to bring back the spirit of Anaxuna Moon and put it into Evie's body. Right. No, he wants to put it back into Anaxuna Moon's mummy, but he needs a human sacrifice. Like how he had to suck the vitality out of the four people that stole the canopic jars. Oh, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> it makes more sense than a lot of stuff in this movie, Melissa. Because <laughs> that's why that's why the two like that's why she's chained up next to the mummy. And if you watch the spirit coming out of the pool, it goes back into the mummy because then you have to have the requisite girl fight but in this one one of the girls is a bandaged mummy (laughs) i mean okay so i think to to will's point though about how she never really needs to be rescued there is a moment like in the halfway point of the film where you know rick wants her to stay in the room and he wants to go and fight the mummy and do everything um do we think that's sweet or is that like him overstepping we are going to stop him. We? What we? We didn't read that book. I told you not to play around that thing. Didn't I tell you not to play around yes, that thing? Me, 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 me. I, I, I woke him up and I intend to stop him. Oh, yeah? How? You heard the man. No mortal weapons can kill this guy. Oh, well, then we are just going to have to find some immortal ones. I think it's more of a why would we bring the thing he's looking for to him? So strategic. Yeah. I mean, because okay. the thing it is kind of like... He is actively searching for you. Bringing you to him might not be the smartest move. Yeah. I think it's also self-interested to a certain degree in that he is like, I don't want to do anything that gives this mummy what it wants. And I think he cares about her and he wants to protect her. But it's not, like, there's a selfish element to it, too. Is Rick the smartest person in the movie? Like, is he the one that... Absolutely like, he not. Def- you don't... Who is... Because I feel like he's the only one that is moving, like, with a little bit of sense. Like, Evie's definitely, like, out here reading from Books of the Dead and stuff. So she's not... Evie's not got the best. The, Evie's got the book smarts. Rick has the common sense. And then Ardith... I was like, Ardith is the dumbest. 
Unfortunately. Actually, it feels like the movie is setting up Ardith to be the smartest, but he fails at everything. everything he does. Every single thing. I always ask myself, why don't they just, like, why don't the Magi stay at Hamanaptra? Like, why? it seems like they don't really, like, hang out too close to it. And it's only when people arrive there do they show up to And fight. when people arrive, the Magi are like, well, if you want to hang out for another day, that's right. fine. <laughs> just, like, promise you'll check out soon. They're more like a hotel concierge than a uh, a bodyguard for the City of the Dead. So it's definitely not Ardith is the smartest. I think, yeah, I think you might be right, Mark, that Rick has the common sense and Evie has some book sense. And they complete each other. They do. I don't know. This is one of my favorite romances ever. So I guess it's good. It's so good. Okay, so I guess like to point four, I like the parallel between an ox on a moon. And Evie telling Emotep and Rick that they're the only ones that can bring them back. And I think, like, maybe kind of keeping with some of the discussions we've had so far is, like, is this kind of unconditional, like, deeply moving love, like, actually romantic? Like, is it actually romantic to have, like, to bring your loved one back from the dead to destroy the world for them? (laughs) Like, is this sort of unconditional love something we should be aspiring to? Come with me, my princess. It is time to make you mine forever. For all eternity, idiot. Puntash Daina. Take my hand and I will spare your friends. Oh dear. Have you got any bright ideas? I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Let's think of something fast because if he turns me into a mummy, you're the first one I'm coming after. Well, one nice thing about the Emotep Angsuna Moon relationship is she does give her consent to be brought back from the dead, which frequently in these kind of stories, the moral is that once you're dead, you should stay dead, and the person trying to bring them back is selfish. But in this one, she says, Bring me back from the dead. And the person bringing her back is selfish because he will destroy the world to right. do so. He's still selfish. But it's less, you know, kind of misogynistic in terms of the resurrection. It's just evil because he's going to destroy the world to do it. Yeah. So you're saying... Do you understand what I mean about that? Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. And it's kind of like the difference, though, with... With Evie. Right, the key is what we're saying is Imhotep is a feminist king. He's a <laughs> right. feminist. Imhotep he's did a, nothing wrong. The, he's <laughs> Imhotep innocent. He's one of the few villains in love that isn't creepy about it. Where it, I mean, he's creepy to Evie. He's creepy yes, to she, Evie. But I it's. But the, he doesn't have this weird obsession with a Nox and a Moon. Like they're both in this together. She's like, I'm going to kill myself. You bring me back. It's not one-sided in any way. I think that's what's nice about it. But it's also bad and unhealthy that both of them are committed to killing the world to see each other again. Okay, so decidedly not sweet. But Rick and Evie, on the other hand, like Evie, when she goes with Emotep, she's choosing to do this so that they can both stop him from destroying the world, but also because she trusts Rick enough to bring her back. And it's also, like, the great merging of the genres that we've been talking about. Right. That that scene where Imhotep is performing the ritual and Rick is trying to save Evie, it's the blending of horror and comedy and adventure. Like, it's genuinely kind of spooky what's going on. Right. And Rick is doing awesome fighting. He's got the big sword. He's yelling at mummies. That's his (laughs) go-to. He swings the sword back and stabs the head of a mummy and then swings it forward and hits another one with the skull. It's great. It's all a good time, yeah. Um, okay. This movie, all around good time. I think that's really the best way to describe it. Just a good time. You're gonna have a good time if you're watching this movie. That's what I spray paint on bathroom walls. For a good time, watch the mummy. <laughs> and so I guess that brings me to the last point, which is the happily ever after. Like any good romance, the HEA is required. <laughs> Well, I guess we go home empty-handed. Again. I wouldn't say that. Please. And I think the perfect kind of moment for me is Jonathan saying, you know, I can't believe we're leaving here empty-handed. And then, of course, the corniest line of 
Rick, well, not completely empty-handed, and oh, Jonathan so saying painful. what everyone's thinking, which is, eh. <laughs> That's the moment when I actually said to Nick, uh, Jonathan, bitter queen. <laughs> but also, Rick took a bunch of gold. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, Rick didn't take the gold. They just take the camel that Benny had already loaded up when he goes oh, back for right. a second bag. That's right. I love this movie so much. Yeah, goodness prevails in the end. You guys should be happy. Emotep doesn't destroy the world or whatever. I am. <laughs> and this movie also made for an incredible roller coaster at Universal Studios <laughs> Singapore. Oh, we have it in the US too. It's the best ride at Universal. I'm so sad I haven't been on this roller coaster. Oh, it's one of those indoor ones that has interactive screens. So it's not the most, you know, intense roller coaster with flips and everything but you like go right up to a wall and stop and then the mummy's mouth opens and the scarabs crawl out towards the car and you do basically the whole track twice you run it and then you run it backwards it's a great ride what do you guys think is the scariest part of this movie because i don't think it's that scary but i do think the for me the bugs the the bugs i for me it's there's a moment where when Emotep just sucked the life out of the Egyptologist, I think that's the moment that he looks the creepiest. He's like super fleshy. Half of his mouth isn't hasn't arrived yet. That's the moment that kind of makes me like the closest to nightmares. The creepiest stuff to me is before Emotep arrives. Like when they are mm. in the tunnels under Hamanoptera and there's just like little things going wrong. Yeah. I just don't like bugs. Bugs. You're just like the prison warden. All right, so after watching this movie, do you find the romance believable? 100%. Uh, Yeah, I think I mostly do. I mostly do. I think that Evie might respond a little more to the jerkishness of Rick at first than I would expect. Like grabbing her and kissing her? Yes, definitely. Through the bar? And just being kind of rude? I mean, I have seen that same scene, but Hannibal Lecter bit a guy's (laughs) nose off. I will say, in Rick's defense and in Evie's defense, he is hot. <laughs> right, exactly. That's... Mark, that is the worst excuse. <laughs> I know, but it makes it more believable why Evie would be like, hmm, maybe he isn't that bad of a guy because she's horny. <laughs> Stop. Well, I think it's also, I think it does kind of speak to that Evie's not some like meek sort of mousy, just, she's not just a librarian. Like she's in it for the adventure too. And there's something about Rick that draws her to spend, I don't know, what did she say? 500 pounds to save his life and 25%. Well, she ends up not spending any money. Right. So she really makes it out great. (laughs) I think the key to Evie is that she is like very proudly who she is yep. that like you know she is a librarian as she states defiantly in that like you know melissa use that word mousy like it's easy to imagine the like bookish version of the character who's like oh gee golly like right. I'm so i don't know nervous. anything about about what this world is like no she's there she's there and she is excited and she's adventurous and she is leading the expedition Yeah, like almost she's leading the expedition and so much of the stuff that like she saves the day when I was watching it with Caleb, he goes, yeah, Evie saves the day. And I'm like, yeah, but she caused the day too. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I was thinking, I was thinking like, she's so dumb reading from that book and opening the sarcophagus. How could you? And then I remembered, oh, wait, mummy, like. Why would she expect a mummy to come back to life and destroy the world? There's no reason for her to think that that would happen by reading from a book. It's the Princess Switch issue where, like, no rational person would say, oh, my friend has been replaced with a monarch who looks exactly like her. Right. But but the Egyptologists seem to have some idea that some bad things were going to happen if, like, yeah, he, he knew Melissa. not to open the tomb. He yells, don't read. From-. I mean, I would personally not read from the book in the cursed city of I, I will say, okay. I would absolutely read from the <laughs> well, there you go. Say, <laughs> Melissa, if someone was like, if you read from this book, you will bring a mummy back to life. Would you believe him? I just don't think given the circumstances. Would you, be- would you believe him? <laughs> I wouldn't believe him, but I certainly wouldn't test it. <laughs> like, I think I would just say, you know what? If he's right, better not. <laughs> That's... <laughs> risk averse that that would be my vibe in hominoptera but 
you know, Evie had different plans and look, it worked out for her. Like she got the man, she got the treasure, she put the mummy away. She's the real hero. All right. So a uh, 10 point scale of, do I believe someone would read aloud from the book? That's a 10 out of 10 for me. <laughs> but we also rate the romance on a scale where zero means we believe none of it. 10 means we believe all of it. Melissa, where would you put the mummy? An 11. <laughs> Our first 11. I just Mark, what are you thinking? Oh, no, Melissa, go ahead. No, I just really think that, like, I think Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz really sell it. I think the characters are put together well enough that you can believe why they would be interested in each other and why they would go on this insane journey together. And I just have a lot of fun in it. And that's, I feel like, should be the key to any romance is that it's a good time. So, an 11. Absolutely. <laughs> I was gonna, Mark, what do you think? I was going to go with an 8. I was also going to give it an 8. I just think that it is definitely much more believable than unbelievable. But I I do think the... Honestly, it would have been more believable if Evie had been more kind of anti-Rick at first. And he had to win her over. But he is rude early on. And she's still like, hmm. Ooh, who is this man? Melissa, if this does anything for you, I just checked. And these romances are very different. But in our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, I gave the romance a 7 and Mark gave it a 5. Oh, so I feel like am I, you guys are biased or am I grading on a curve? (laughs) Well, no, what I'm saying is we both gave this an 8. So we found this romance more believable than Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, this romance is so much more believable than (laughs) Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. At least it didn't start with a child wedding. (laughs) Yeah. Feels like the bar's okay. very low. <laughs> that that is fair. All right. Do you think that either of these characters is dateable? Absolutely. I think in the whole movie, there are only a few characters who aren't dateable. I mean, I guess maybe if you remove the hotness factor, there's probably more. But I think Rick is dateable. Evie is super dateable. Yeah, hundred. Evie is super dateable. Jonathan is a good time. <laughs> maybe not a. Com- I would love to drink with Jonathan. Maybe right. not a committed relationship. But I feel like you could have some fun with Jonathan. Ardeth Bay, dumb king. (laughs) (laughs) I think Ardeth is definitely dateable, but maybe a little too... He's, you know, he's very committed to his cause. So I don't know. You can have a good time with him, but maybe... So so he's a dumb zealot, is what you're saying? (laughs) Dumb, hot zealot. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that subject, Melissa, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, who would it be? Rick. Definitely Rick. I struggled with this because... I think, I mean, the answer is Evie. The answer is obviously Evie. But again, I like to pick, I like to try and think of a non-main character. And I was leaning towards the museum curator. Because he's got a great job, super smart, and a mysterious past. <laughs> Are you talking about the, the Magi guy who Secret burns Magi. the Magi. Who's played by Eric Avari, who is the leader of, like the common people on the other planet in Stargate. This movie is a great example of why we were so shocked that an Egyptian person played a pharaoh <laughs> in Night at the Museum. So, Will, your answer is Evie as well. Oh, yeah, my answer I mean, has to be Evie. Do you think that these two will stay together? I don't know that I do. Oh, you have to explain that. I just have a hard time imagining Evie and Rick putting up with each other in the long term. I think they're pretty different people who are going to want to do quite different things. I do think they could reach a happy middle of balancing adventuring because Evie clearly loves to adventure. Yeah. It's not a relationship in a lot like in a lot of these movies where the woman is much more hesitant to be on the adventure. She is willing to go out and do these digs with him and go off and treasure hunt. But the question is, could Rick settle down? long enough for her to join the Pembridge scholars. And I kind of think no. I feel oh my god, am I a stan? Am I a mummy stan? Like I'm like learning things I about think myself. It's very <laughs> you started by saying this might be the best movie. I mean it's still worth thinking about. I, I don't know. Still, <laughs> I'm not I'm not con- this is one where I cannot definitively say I think either way. I think they're in it for the long haul. Because I think that Evie Loves the adventure. She seeks the adventure. I actually think Rick is the one who would want to settle down at some point. Well, we will all find out how this goes (laughs) when we all watch The Mummy Returns. Returns. (laughs) Next episode. 
Now, Melissa, I'm very excited to ask you this question. Many of the movies we cover on this podcast have been adapted into musicals on the Great White Way. I have to ask, should The Mummy be made into a Broadway musical? Yes. <laughs> and I think because I need to see it, first of all. <laughs> but I, I feel like when I, I knew this question was coming and I was thinking... There was a particular scene where I was like, oh, I can see this on the stage. And it's when everyone's chanting Emotep. I keep thinking, I can totally see like a whole choreography like Emotep, Emotep. And and then they're like doing all of this dancing. So I need that scene just for myself. So I I definitely think it can be The whole prologue could be a great opening number. Right. (laughs) I just think that this movie is a swashbuckling, like traveling adventure that leans pretty importantly on visual effects and i think it is best suited for a movie it is best suited for a movie but i think some fun things i think a really scaled back off broadway like off off broadway musical inspired by the mummy 1999 could be fun obviously there has not been a musical based on the mummy 1999 there was a children's musical in 1996 called the mummy musical which is about uh, a girl whose family could not afford to go anywhere fancy for summer vacation so in her classes going around telling stories she makes up an elaborate lie about going into egypt and traveling back in time and there's a bunch of stuff going on for cleopatra's birthday and among other things she meets the ancient rap group the mummy brothers Oh, I want to see this. <laughs> that sounds very silly. The mummy. Speaking bug. of silly, next week we're talking about Peter Rabbit. We've been <laughs> teasing it since like episode twelve of this podcast. Happy Easter, one and all. So it's May. Easter is long past, but allegedly Peter Rabbit Two: The Runaway is finally coming out in theaters. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, last question, Melissa. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from The Mummy? This is super cliche, but I think this movie has a really cliche romance in it, to be honest. But don't Valid. judge a book. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't read a book that you that like might wake up a mummy from the dead too. Maybe that's the other I critical. Will so say. you should neither judge nor read the exactly. Book. <laughs> just don't just don't even look at books. <laughs> yes. My advice: books are bad. Uh, I will say I think that part of the reason the romance works in this movie is because she judges a book by its cover. It goes with how hot he is <laughs> over his personality. So your advice is do judge a book by its cover. No, I'm not saying that's good advice. I'm just saying that is the advice it worked for that Evie. seems to happen in the movie. My advice is if you're into someone and they're kind of drunk, don't make fun of them for being drunk. Just figure out what they mean, like Rick does with Evie. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. And I'm still black. (laughs) (laughs) And between the three of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye! Bye! Walk like an Egyptian.